leave it to the guest preacher to need everything to be just right. Well, good morning, the brook. Uh, Michelle and I and our newest addition, Jude, are so glad to be back. Uh, Michelle and I have a couple church homes, and this is definitely one of them. So just know that from us to you, it is good to be home. So it's good to see some some faces that we know, uh, some faces that we don't know. Thank you, thank you. Uh, the place looks great, um, but really what we're really excited for is that uh, this church is still preaching the gospel in this neighborhood, and that's really what makes us um, excited. So I wanted to just share a little bit about Schiller Park. Um, a lot of people, you know, when we tell them we're going to plant a church in Schiller Park, you know, they ask us, well, well, why are you planting a church in Schiller Park? Why that neighborhood in particular? Why did you feel that God was calling you to, to, to help restart that church? And those are all great questions. And really, our story is you know, it's pretty intertwined. There's a lot of answers to that. So I just thought I would share a couple with you uh, this morning. So the first reason I would say that we feel called to, to replant a church in Schiller Park is, is both a theological and a personal reason. And it comes out of Psalm 96.8. Now the word of God says, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. There's something about the very character of God that just demands praise from all of the earth. So when we see communities that don't have a gospel-centered church, that don't seem to be gathering to give him the praise that he deserves, uh, that breaks our heart. There's, you could almost say it's a cosmic injustice the, the, the earth is his, uh, and he deserves its glory. So um, I don't know how much you know about the Schiller Park area. This is a community just on the east side of O'Hare Airport, but it's 12,000 people. Unfortunately, there are only two dying churches in that community. Um, and we just don't see people gathering to say, uh, Jesus is the one who redeems sinners. And that breaks our hearts. So, so that's the theological impetus to, uh, to a start a church uh, where there really isn't one. But also I'd say one of the, one of the other reasons that we are, uh, where I, I guess I'd say one of the reasons why Michelle and I feel like the Lord has called us to that place in particular is because of our time here at the brook. Uh, the Lord has really used this in preparing us for that. Uh, when the denomination reached out to us, they said, you know, there's an EFCA church in Schiller Park that has had a wonderful history, uh, but unfortunately it had to close its doors uh, so we've got a building, uh, we've got, you know, a community that needs a church. Uh, you know, would you be interested in replanting a church there? And it kind of struck us, like, wow, what are the odds? I mean, that is a, that's very similar to what we did at the Brook, or what we, what we helped with. In fact, it's kind of a joke in our denomination, the EFCA, that we need to stop naming churches uh, Grace Church, because those seem to be all the ones that die out and need to be replanted. But uh, I don't know if that's the case everywhere. Um, but we really do. We really see that our time here at the brook, uh, the Lord used us, uh, used this time to prepare us for really only what he knew was coming next. Um, so again, we're, we're so excited to be back. We're so excited to see that the gospel is being faithfully proclaimed here. And we would really value your prayers. Uh, this is a spiritual work. I, I worry that sometimes a lot of people think, oh, well, you know, they're great people. They've got some, you know, great people partnering with them. You know, they've got some great education. Uh, you know, they've got a cute baby. Like, I'm sure the church will be fine. 
But this is a spiritual work. I mean, there's a spiritual reason why there was a faithful church and why it's died out. There's a spiritual reason. There are spiritual forces that are at play for why there really aren't a lot of faithful churches in kind of that outer ring of the city of Chicago. I mean, something's going on. So we would really ask, would you pray for us? Um, And you can pray for us however you would like. I mean, we pretty much, you name it, it's probably a need of ours. Uh, But if you would like to partner with us, if you would like to partner with us in kind of more specific, intentional prayer, um, we have a prayer sign-up at kind of the Welcome Kids Kiosk Desk uh, out in the foyer. So feel free to put your name and your email down. And right now I'm sending out kind of a ministry update with some specific prayer requests uh, about once a month. So if you would like to partner with us that way, uh, that would be wonderful. Well, if you would, we are here to hear from the Word of God. So let's just pray as we uh, get into, the, into God's Word. Father, we praise you for you are the God who will be exalted among the nations. Father, you say that you will be exalted in all the earth. So, Father, we come today to be still, to know that you are God, and to hear from you in your word. Father, would you speak your grace to us today, the grace of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, since moving to Schiller Park, I've actually uh, met some pretty interesting people who have told me that uh, there's kind of a history of mafia involvement in our area. So uh, I don't know if that's your welcome to the neighborhood uh, story that you share with people, but uh, I've run into that a few times. So apparently a lot of the entertainment industry that we see in Rosemont used to be on Mannheim Road right by the airport. And apparently that's uh, where the mafia used to like to hang out. Now, I don't know if all of the stories that I've heard are true. I kind of doubt it. They're fun nonetheless. But the mafia is definitely one group where when you are a part of them, you don't turn your back on them. Uh, Michael Franzese, he's actually now a Christian, he used to be a captain in the Colombo family. That was one of the five largest mafia families in New York. And he says the expression is true. You don't leave the mafia unless you're going out in a coffin. He says the only way out is a box. So this is a group where if you're unfaithful to them, it's not good. It is not a good thing, and that is guaranteed. Well, in our text today, we're going to look and we're going to find out as Christians, as someone who's become a Christian, if we are unfaithful to God, what happens? What is the response of the God of heaven to his people when they are unfaithful, when they are unfaithful to him? And I would say this is really important for you if you are not a Christian this morning. And you've been thinking, you know, is this a God who I want to put my faith in? Uh, Am I going to repent of my sins? Am I going to put my faith in him and become a Christian? You're going to want to know, if I do do that, how is he going to treat me? How is he going to relate to me if I do fail him, if I don't live up to his standards all the time? So if you would, please turn with me to our text this morning, and that is Nehemiah chapter 1. The book of Nehemiah begins with a series of memoirs, you could say. So Nehemiah has recorded these for us. And we're going to look at his first two memoirs, kind of an autobiography. And what we're going to see is, how does God respond to his people when they are unfaithful? We've all been in that boat. So the first memoir of Nehemiah is this. Number one, 
the destruction of unfaithfulness. The destruction of unfaithfulness. Uh, We see this first memoir in verses 1 through 3. Uh, Look with me at Nehemiah, uh, starting in chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So Nehemiah is a Jew who lives in the capital of Persia. Later in the chapter, we see that he's actually a cupbearer to the king. So he is in the palace. Every good story starts with someone in the palace. So this guy is far from home. But in the Lord's providence, his brother comes to visit him with a group from Judah. And Nehemiah has actually probably never been to his home. He's never been to Jerusalem. So, of course, he immediately asks, well, how are the Jews doing? How is the city doing? He cares for them deeply. And as we read, the report is not good. In verse 3, they told Nehemiah, well, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile, it's in great trouble. It's in great shame. The wall's broken down. The gates are destroyed by fire. Now, the mention of the exile is actually really helpful for us in this text because what it does is it reminds us of Israel's history. You see, it was actually because Israel was unfaithful to the Lord that in 587 B.C., the Lord disciplined Israel by bringing in Babylon, who took most of the nation captive and destroyed most of Jerusalem. So now, this is about 140 years later, And Nehemiah is asking, well, how are the people doing? How is the city doing? You know, how's the rebuilding going? And sadly, I mean, folks, this is 140 years later. The city of God and the people in the city are still in ruins. You know what? The Lord even sent them prophets. He sent them Haggai. He sent them Zechariah. He sent them Malachi. And the people still refused to return to the Lord. So just just let this settle in, in your mind and your heart. The unfaithfulness of the people of God has caused a whole community, the very city of God, to be in ruins for almost a century and a half. I would say this is a very powerful picture for us of how unfaithfulness toward the Lord is surprisingly destructive. Unfaithfulness toward the Lord is destructive. Sin, rebellion toward him, it's always destructive. And this is part of the very nature of sin. And this is what this first memoir of Nehemiah is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a visual picture. I mean, just think about a city that's in ruins. The walls are broken. It's you know, got smoke because the gates are on fire. That's a picture for us what sin does. It destroys We even see this in the New Testament. Think of 1 Peter 5.8. Christians are commanded, be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to what? To devour, to destroy. 
See, even the devil knows, well, if I can get them to be unfaithful to the Lord, that will have destructive consequences to the family, to the church, to the community. I mean, sin destroys. And what's interesting here is in this memoir that Nehemiah writes about, this is the unfaithfulness of the people of God. I mean, this is the people of God who have been unfaithful, and all of this destruction has come about. Now, there are some instances where it's pretty clear to see that unfaithfulness toward the Lord, you know, sin and rebellion, it's got destructive consequences. Uh, Sadly, even this week, we can look at the horrific shootings in Texas. I read one article that said that this was actually the worst mass shooting in Texas history. 27 people were killed, including a 77-year-old, eight children, and even an unborn child. I mean, we can't, you can't wrap your head around the destruction that's going to come from that act of violence for those families, that community. It's not like that's going to be wiped away in a year. I mean, that's going to have drastic effects on families in that community for generations. It's very destructive. So it's easy to see it there. But the danger is in thinking, well, only acts like that Only sin and rebellion of that type really has destructive effects. Think about it. God's word says that every dishonest word destroys our character. Every lustful thought destroys our purity. Every financial dishonesty, it steals from another. Every word of slander, it tears someone down. Every bitter thought of unforgiveness eats us up inside. And the thing is, this destruction, it doesn't just affect us. It affects others. As parents, we know that these uh, unfaithful patterns that we see in our own lives, well, where do they usually show up? Often in our children. The destructive uh, consequences, it spreads. It's scary. But, you know, even the Bible talks about generational sin. Uh, In church, we've seen, you know, it only takes a few people to be unfaithful to really eat away at the unity that we have as a church and also to to really hamper our witness to the world. I mean, how many times have you heard someone say, like, oh, you go to church. Well, they're so hypocritical. Well, could have just been a couple people's unfaithfulness that has given them that view of the church. It's destructive. And I would say in our communities in Chicago, it's becoming more and more obvious that really the systematic problems that we're dealing with, whether it be education, politics, sexuality, violence, they're not due to the fact that we merely need some more funding, but the fact that we're a community of sinners and it has destructive consequences. It's real. It's the nature of sin. This is tough stuff. It's real stuff. Now, we have to admit that this is, a, this is a very sobering truth. I mean, just taking a minute to really consider, you know, the destruction that our unfaithfulness toward the Lord has to us and the people that we know, uh, it's no small thing. It's heavy. Uh, if we just stopped there, I would say it would be paralyzing. Uh, there would be no hope. So I think the question that we're left with after this first memoir, seeing this city that's just broken down and in ruins, just having a sense of, man, when I'm unfaithful to the Lord, like it destroys, what do we do? 
What did Nehemiah do? And really, the most important question is, how does my God respond when I've been unfaithful to him? Well, that takes us to the second memoir of Nehemiah. So the second memoir of Nehemiah is this. Number two, we see here a prayer to the faithful one. A prayer to the faithful one. Now look with me at verse 4. This is where the prayer begins. Nehemiah 1, verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So Nehemiah's heart is obviously heavy with the unfaithfulness and destruction that he sees. And that's evidenced by uh, this weeping and mourning for the people and city of God. But notice this that he brings that unfaithfulness that he sees and that he himself bears to the presence of the Lord in prayer. Friends, this is a great example for us. For whenever we have been unfaithful, we should bring that unfaithfulness to the Lord in prayer. Friends, this is very important. It is not enough to just sweep that unfaithfulness under the rug. In fact, it's not enough to just feel sorry about what we've done. And we can even say it's not even enough to feel sorry about what we've done and decided we're going to change next time. It's going to be different. I'm going to change. The Word of God says that is not enough. The Word of God says when we are unfaithful, we must bring that unfaithfulness to the Lord in prayer. That is where the healing comes. If you just set it aside, if you just choose that I'm going to do better next time, there's no healing there. There's no forgiveness. But there's healing if we bring it to the Lord. Now, fortunately, this is exactly what Nehemiah does. He's a man of prayer. As we see throughout the rest of the book, pretty much anything that happens, Nehemiah is going to the Lord in prayer. So as we look at this second memoir, this prayer to the faithful one, I think the word of God gives us three pieces to pray when we've been unfaithful. This is very practical. If I've been unfaithful to the Lord, whether it's in a small way or a large way, if I'm going to come to him and I'm going to bring that unfaithfulness to him in prayer, what does that look like? What am I to do? Well, there's three pieces to it, and they're all outlined here in this second memoir of Nehemiah's. So the first piece that we want to pray is this. Number one, pray to the God of heaven. Pray to the God of heaven. This is repeated twice, both in the end of verse 4. He says that he's fasting and praying before the God of heaven, but it's how he begins his prayer. Look with me at verse 5. Nehemiah says, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. This is actually kind of cool. In Persia, that title, the God of heaven, actually would have been used to describe the Persian god, Ahura Mazda. But note that Nehemiah prays to the Lord, the God of heaven. That is as if to say, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of heaven. So really what Nehemiah is saying is, Father, I may be in Persia, but I'm coming to you. You are the God of heaven. You are the one, no matter where I am or who's around me, you're the one that's created this world. uh, And you continue to rule all things. So when we pray to the God of heaven, 
We come to the God of the Bible. We come to the God of Jesus Christ. And the reason we do that is because he has been the one that we are unfaithful to. He's the Lord. He's the God of heaven, the great and awesome God. It's his holiness we've sinned against. And think about it. All of the destruction that has come, it's his stuff. That's why we come to him. We've offended him. Now, what's beautiful in this passage is that there is a sense in which we must come to him because it's him we have offended. But there's also a sense in which uh, we can come to him. As we read in the text, it goes on to say that this Lord, this holy God, he's also the one who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So this is a God who he keeps his promises. Uh, he relates to his children in steadfast love. If God in his holiness was like the mafia, I mean, there'd be no use in bringing our unfaithfulness to him, uh, even if he was the one that we had offended. Because I mean, we'd just be annihilated. But because he shows his people steadfast love, we can come to him. And in a sense, this is what it means to be God. It's this sense of awesomeness and holiness and yet also grace and steadfast love that it draws us to him in prayer. That's his character. That's who he is. There's no one like him. So when we've been unfaithful, we want to come to the Lord. We want to pray to this God of heaven. But the second piece we want to have when we come to the Lord in prayer is to confess your unfaithfulness. Number two, confess your unfaithfulness. This is what Nehemiah does next in verses 6 and 7. In verse 6 he says, Father, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you. We've not kept your commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Nehemiah takes full responsibility for his unfaithfulness to God. Notice that what he does, he, he names it for what it is. He says, Lord, in this case, it's been corruption. It's been a lack of keeping your commandments, your statutes, and your rules, which you clearly gave to us. This is also a good reminder for us that as we think about our unfaithfulness to the Lord, it includes both refraining from what God has prohibited, uh, but it also includes doing the good that God has commanded. So Nehemiah, he pours out his heart. He pours out his guilt before the Lord. But notice that he doesn't stay there. He names it for what he is. He confesses his unfaithfulness, but he doesn't stay there. The third piece in this prayer that we can bring to the Lord is this. Number three, trust in the mercy of God. Trust in that great mercy of God. Nehemiah spends a lot of time here. We see this in verses 8 through 11. And if there are some great verses to underline in the first chapter of Nehemiah, uh, these are some of them. Uh, read along with me in uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 8. Nehemiah says, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me 
and keep my commandments and do them. Though you're dispersed, be under the farthest skies, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Father, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king. So obviously these verses are full of the mercy of God. His steadfast love to his people. Verses 8 and 9, it contains this gracious promise that even if they are unfaithful and have been scattered, if they return, God will gather them and dwell with them again. In verse 10, we're reminded that this God is the one who has already redeemed them from Egypt through the Exodus by his great power and strong hand. In verse 11, Nehemiah asks for mercy in the sight of the king, which if we kept reading in chapter 2 and forward, we'd see that God does so generously. He gives, he gives Nehemiah a ton of mercy in the sight of the king. So Nehemiah reminds himself of just mercy after mercy that he can trust in. I mean, he does say, Father, you are the God of steadfast love, but he also, he rehearses those mercies. And that does something to his heart. That does something to the trust that he has in this God of heaven. See, I think Nehemiah knew that even though he was unfaithful, he could return to the faithful one. He saw that the Lord had redeemed them in the past and had promised to dwell with them if they would walk with him. And he knew the Lord's word could be trusted. Friends, I would submit that this is the glory of the gospel. I mean, just think about this. Not only does the Lord redeem his people from slaves of darkness to children of light at a great cost, he does that. But not only does he do that, but he makes a covenant with them promising that even after redeeming you, even if you choose to be unfaithful to me, I will always be faithful to you. That's the gospel. That's the God of Jesus Christ. Now what's cool is Nehemiah knew this to be true because he could look back to the Exodus and he could look back to the old covenant but friends, we get to look back to the redemption of Jesus Christ on the cross. The promise of the new covenant, the even greater covenant, the more fulfilled covenant. Hebrews 13, 5, Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's a powerful word. It's a promise. Friends, if you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ... All I can say is there is no other God like him, not in Persia and not anywhere. Would you come to him today? Would you bring your unfaithfulness to him and say, Father, I am the unfaithful one, but you are the faithful one. Friend, I can tell you from the word of God today, if you repent of your sins, if you would put your faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on your behalf, God promises you today that he will always be faithful to you. It's the gospel. As Christians, this is still great news. 
If I asked, hey, which Christian, uh, the Christians on this side or the Christians on this side, which ones of you have always been faithful to the Lord? Well, I don't think any hands would go up. Mine certainly would not. Brother and sister in Christ, when we are unfaithful, we can return to the faithful one. We will be met with his steadfast love. Friends, we may be unfaithful, but he is the faithful one. Uh, We are sinners, but he is the great Savior. And as we've seen from the first memoir, our sin is great. It is destructive. But his mercy is greater. And that is the gospel. Brother and sister, when you are unfaithful, return to the faithful one. And you will be met with his steadfast love. Every time. Nothing but good. Let's pray together. Father, it's clear from your word that you are the Lord, the God of heaven. Father, you are the great and awesome God. You keep your covenant and your steadfast love. Father, there is no one like you. There is no one who redeems sinners like you. Father, thank you for being the God who rebuilds even broken lives like ours. Father, to you be the glory, the power, and the dominion for all eternity. Father, you are the God who is faithful to the unfaithful. It's in the name of Jesus that we gladly pray. Amen.